ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by and welcome to the Avalara Second Quarter 2020 Earnings Conference Call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you'll need to press star 1 on your telephone. Please be advised that today's conference is being recorded. If you require any further assistance, please press star 0. I would now like to hand the conference over to the first speaker today, Jennifer Giamola, Vice President, Investor Relations. Thank you. Please go ahead. Good afternoon, and welcome to Avalara's second quarter 2020 earnings call. We will be discussing the results announced in our press release issued after market close today. With me are Avalara's CEO, Scott McFarland, and CFO, Ross Tenenbaum. Today's call will contain forward-looking statements, which are made pursuant to the safe harbor provisions of the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Forward-looking statements include statements concerning financial and business trends, the impacts of COVID-19 on our business and global economic conditions, our expected future business and financial performance and financial condition, and our guidance for the third quarter and fiscal year, and can be identified by words such as expect, anticipate, intend, plan, believe, seek, or will. These statements reflect our views as of today only, should not be relied upon as representing our views at any subsequent date, and we do not undertake any duty to update these statements. Forward-looking statements by their nature address matters that are subject to risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results to differ materially from expectations. For a discussion of the material risks and other important factors that could affect our actual results, please refer to the risks discussed in today's press release, our annual report on Form 10-K, filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission on February 28, 2020, and our other periodic filings with the SEC. During the call, we will also discuss non-GAAP financial measures, which are not prepared in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles. A reconciliation of the GAAP and non-GAAP results is included in our earnings press release, which has been filed with the SEC and is also available on our website at investor.avalera.com. With that, let me turn the call over to Scott. Thanks, Jennifer, and welcome to everyone joining our Q2 2020 earnings call. Q2 was another strong quarter that exceeded our expectations amid a challenging business climate. Our revenue was $116.5 million, up 28% year over year. I was pleased to see our momentum accelerate throughout the quarter, with June representing our best non-December total bookings month ever. Our Q2 results validate the resiliency of the Avalara team, our business model, and our value proposition, which we believe is resonating well with prospects in this difficult time. ROI and efficiency have always been compelling aspects of our solutions, but they're even more critical in tougher times as businesses look to reduce costs and reallocate people or reduce their headcount. Automating with software is an effective way to facilitate that kind of efficiency. I'm more confident than ever in our ability to build a lasting company with durable growth characteristics. I'm so proud of the team and would like to thank our employees for their hard work and their commitment to our customers. The adaptability of Avalarians during this crisis has been nothing short of amazing. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Not all SaaS businesses are created equal. And in my view, Avalara has structural advantages that allow us to thrive in both good and challenging times. The COVID-19 pandemic has either created or enhanced four macro trends that we believe will produce multi-year tailwinds for Avalara. The first is the acceleration of e-commerce adoption. Globally, every business is becoming an e-commerce business. In the past, Many businesses have been able to get by managing sales tax compliance manually. If you have a few stores and a few fixed locations, you can probably manage sales tax without us. But today, so many businesses are moving to e-commerce, which means they are selling across multiple channels, stores, websites, and one or multiple marketplaces. In this format, businesses have become omni-channel and national or even international e-tailers. This exponentially increases their tax compliance complexity, 
which amplifies our value proposition and makes our solutions much more compelling and stickier. The second trend is the acceleration of cloud adoption. The COVID-19 crisis is forcing businesses to modernize their systems to facilitate digital and remote workforces. We believe this will accelerate the adoption of cloud solutions as businesses shed legacy, inflexible, on-prem systems. We see this trend play out daily as companies move to the cloud. We believe we offer the industry-leading cloud compliance platform to address these needs. The third trend, as I mentioned before, is related to the growing emphasis on ROI and efficiency. As businesses look to reduce costs and become more efficient, it only makes sense to look at software solutions that help them automate their business. Avalara facilitates efficiency and provides a compelling and demonstrable ROI for our customers. As an example, a global technology services company selected Avalara due to the ROI of integration with one of our key partners. Rates are kept up to date automatically and automated tax jurisdiction information is transferred directly into the application, resulting in a reduction in the company's IT budget and applying these saved costs towards revenue generating projects. And lastly, we think that increasing regulatory enforcement may become a tailwind for us. State and local governments face a tremendous fiscal challenge, and we believe stricter enforcement of tax laws is on the horizon. As you may know, Avalara is one of the original streamlined sales tax, or SST, certified service providers. SST makes the process of selling into multiple states a lot easier by lowering the cost of compliance and reducing audit risks for participating businesses. Created in 2000, the SST program is a cooperative arrangement among 24 U.S. state governments for the collection and payment of retail sales tax when the seller and the purchasers are located in different tax jurisdictions. In the first half of 2020, our revenue from the SST program grew year over year by more than 100%. And SST is a big differentiator for Avalara as some of our primary competitors are not currently certified as providers by the SST organization. Being part of this program helps widen our moat and has been a great growth engine for us. We are seeing these trends play out, so let me spend a moment and share a few customer examples. One of our largest and recent logo deals was with a Fortune 500 global leader of electrical, industrial, and communication products and services. The customer evaluated other solutions on the market, but ultimately chose Avalara for the strength of our cloud exemption certificate management solution. This is the type of deal that would have been tougher for us two years ago but because we've invested in enhancing our platform and enterprise product suite, we feel good about our ability to continue to win up market. At the other end of the spectrum, let me share an emerging small business win. A leading provider of medical supplies to federal health facilities selected Avalara over the competition. This company selected Avalara because of, one, our pre-built integration with QuickBooks, two, our ability to offer SST, and three, our robust product suite, including exemption certificate management and our managed return services. Our largest deal of the quarter was $310,000 in total contract value. I'm particularly excited about this deal because it's an international deal sold to a UK-based multi-channel retailer that purchased our solution mainly because of our cross-border product suite. The company selected Avalara because we are a platform provider that can support their global compliance needs, including cross-border classification, calculations of custom duties and import taxes, and U.S. sales tax calculations and returns filed. Additionally, we are proud to have won a deal with a large and prestigious West Coast University that selected Avalara for our new consumer use product, which became available on June 1st. This product is brand new and we're already winning large deals as a result. We have also had new business success in the e-commerce marketplace arena. As we discussed at our recent analyst day, in 2019, we dedicated the sales and account management team to focus on 350 global marketplaces, and that investment has paid off. 
today, 136 of those 350 global marketplaces leverage Avalara's determination, compliance, and or cross-border services. In addition to new logo wins, we're also focused on deepening our relationship with existing marketplace customers. For example, a fast-growing apparel marketplace who has used our Avatax solution for U.S. sales tax calculations since 2019 expanded their relationship with us by selecting our cross-border calculation solution. The above examples are indicative of the strategy we are pursuing to maximize Avalara's opportunity and sustain healthy growth rates. Whether it's supporting new tax types such as consumer use and cross-borders, moving into new industries or new geographies, building more muscle across customer size segments, or securing additional partnerships with marketplaces and e-commerce platforms, we are finding ways to build stronger relationships with new customer prospects, existing customers, and partners. We are building a global cloud compliance platform company and are backing this effort with a product portfolio that is rapidly growing and a product development cadence that is accelerating. At our analyst day, we told you we are transforming into a product machine. And you heard a lot about our investment in product. But I want to reiterate on a few key product initiatives. Prior to our analyst day, we announced the availability of Avalara consumer use on June 1st. After our analyst day, we announced enhanced capabilities for Avalara's cross-border solution. The next big milestone is Avalara's return for small business, which is expected to be generally available in a few weeks. We also continue to move forward with the foundational elements of our business, acquisitions that expand our content, solutions, and international presence has always been an important part of our success. M&A has been in our manifesto since we founded the company, and nothing has changed on that front. It's been longer than I like since our last deal, but we have a robust pipeline. We will continue to look for and close opportunities that we believe will improve Avalara and sustain our growth objectives. We are continuing to build out our world-class global corporate development team including a new executive vice president who will expand the team to include additional expertise in deal execution and integration. And, of course, I can't fail to mention our partners. As you know, Avalara has been a partner-centered company since our founding, and our partner strategy has created a competitive moat that also drives growth. The result of this long-term strategy is that Avalara offers far more pre-built integrations into applications companies use to run their business than any competitor. In today's omni-channel world, this creates a significant differentiator for us. The strength of our offering and long-standing partner relationships play nicely to our advantage when working with prospects using the largest traditional business systems. But our advantage is even greater in the long tail. The hundreds of smaller or specialized applications where we are one of the few automation providers with an integration. Each quarter, we add new partners and new integrations to our moat, and we will continue to do so as we drive towards our vision of becoming the global cloud compliance platform. This combination of breadth and depth is incredibly difficult to replicate and represents a key strategic differentiator as we acquire new and grow with our existing customers. Q2 is a strong quarter for Avalara. The early quarter rebound in our marketing funnel continued to improve and drove sequentially improving bookings that resulted in a very strong June. The results exceeded our expectations amid this precarious time. We saw solid results from the efforts we took to rapidly revamp our customer messaging to an ROI story, embrace our partners with mutually beneficial market strategies, reach our prospects in new and innovative ways, and support our customers. We are cautiously optimistic based on the encouraging data we are seeing, but the COVID-19 crisis remains a very fluid situation with headlines suggesting continued uncertainty. We intend to keep our heads down and remain maniacally focused on expanding our cloud platform, extending our content, and increasing our partnerships, both through organic and inorganic means to take advantage of our large opportunity and the levers we have to sustain our cloud compliance platform leadership. 
Our strong Q2 results also included improvements in gross margin. We have previously discussed our intense focus on improving gross margin over the long term, and that hasn't changed. The improvement in Q2 was largely driven by our Q2 hiring slowdown amid COVID-19. We continue to make investments in automation that we believe will drive gross margin efficiencies in the future. We are just beginning to see encouraging efficiencies from investments in our customer support processes and technologies that will enable us to scale with less additional headcount, as well as investments in compliance automation that are increasing returns filed per employee. Now I'd like to make a brief comment on a significant legal win for Avalara. On May 27th, the U.S. District Court dismissed all the remaining claims against Avalara in a 2018 case brought by PTP OneClick. The court's decision was a complete victory. Not only did the court dismiss all the claims and invalidate PTP's patent, the court also admonished the plaintiff for its conduct and found he submitted a sham declaration in an attempt to avoid summary judgment. We always knew the claims were without merit, and we are delighted to have this distraction behind us. Thank you to our legal team. On the leadership front, I'm pleased to share that Kathleen Westlock recently joined Avalara as Chief Human Resources Officer. Kathleen has overseen human resources for publicly and privately held companies of all sizes across several industries, including Cisco, Deloitte, FIS, formerly SunGuard Data Systems, and more. Kathleen is carrying on our ongoing mission to cement Avalara as one of the best places to work in all of SAS by scaling our talent programs and building the most inclusive workplace culture in the country. Welcome, Kathleen. I'm also pleased to announce that Jamie Fishman recently joined Avalara as Executive Vice President of Corporate Development. Jamie brings 20 years of experience in corporate development across the tech, technology, and consulting industries to Avalara. He ran sales, business development, and professional services at Taxware, now a subsidiary of Sovos. And most recently, he served as president of the software division for Ryan & Company, one of the largest tax consulting firms in North America. Jamie is a true industry expert and will be working to expand our global compliance footprint as we continue to add new content, technologies, geographies, and customers. Welcome, Jamie. Marshall Kushnira, our outgoing head of corporate development and one of our founding employees who has in the past led nearly every aspect of our business, will remain at Avalara helping to transition the corporate development role to Jamie, providing his unique industry expertise throughout the organization and working on various special global projects with me. As you know, we've continued to bolster the leadership team since becoming a public company. The talent of our executive team was on full display at our virtual analyst day in June. I hope you had a chance to watch it. I am so fortunate to be surrounded by executives that I believe will take us to a billion dollars in revenue and beyond. I will now turn the call over to Ross to talk through our financial results. Thank you, Scott. It feels like a long time since our early May earnings call, my first call as Avalara CFO, when we were grappling with the many questions surrounding COVID-19 and in what ways will it impact our customers and business. We provided visibility on the impact to new sales demand through a glimpse into March billings growth and cautioned that April would likely look a lot like March. We noted that our April lead funnel was improving, and we were hopeful these leads would begin to turn into bookings in May and June. Fast forward to today, and I'm very pleased with our Q2 results. Our team worked tirelessly day and night to market our ROI value proposition and enhance our digital demand generation, to evolve and innovate how we go to market with our partners, to launch valuable new products, and to become trusted advisors to our customers. And we were pleased to see these efforts drive meaningful sequential increases in bookings reflected in stronger May and June year-over-year billings growth. We proceed from here with cautious optimism. We have proven our business is strong and good and in challenging times, and that we can produce positive free cash flow and non-GAAP operating income when needed. 
We remind investors that we are a leader in a very large global market that we believe remains single-digit penetrated. June's performance included pent-up demand and can't yet be called a trend. And therefore, we are not modeling the second half based on June, and nor should you. We will continue to work tirelessly to capitalize on all our opportunities and build a sustainable business that compounds revenue at high rates of growth for the long term. Now let's get into our second quarter results. For the second quarter, total revenue was $116.5 million, up 28% on a year-over-year basis. Subscription and returns revenue grew 28% year-over-year to $108.5 million, which represented 93% of our total revenue. We were very pleased with our subscription growth rate given the COVID-19 pandemic and that Q219 at the time reflected the strongest year-over-year subscription revenue growth since going public. Professional services revenue was $8 million, up 27% year-over-year. Professional services revenue included approximately $1 million in one-time adjustments. Our core customer account increased by 590 from the previous quarter to approximately 13,300 at the end of Q2 2020, a year-over-year increase of 28%. As a reminder, core customers is a lagging indicator for Avalara, and the increase was expected to be moderate in Q2 as a result of the impact of COVID-19. We have not previously included in our core customer count customers that terminated services with Avalara that we later won back. We are revising our core customer disclosure to include these win-back customers when they meet the definition of a core customer. This change results in approximately 13,560 core customers at the end of Q2 2020. For transparency, we have provided both numbers in our earnings press release. Our net revenue retention rate was 107%, resulting in a 110% four-quarter average which is what we previously stated is the percentage you should think about on a longer-term basis. As a reminder, our net revenue retention rate is calculated using total revenue, which is subject to the impact of non-recurring professional services. In addition, the calculation currently excludes our streamlined sales tax, or SST business, which has been growing significantly in 2020 through upsell to existing customers as well as sales to new customers. Despite the current macro environment, our customers must still calculate taxes and file a return, and our business model and customer base so far has shown the resiliency we expect. To illustrate, I'd like to provide you with more details on our stable customer base. In Q2, the number of logos that churned out of our business again remained immaterial and was down year over year as a percentage of our renewal base. Our gross revenue churn, which in the past we have said has been meaningfully lower than 4%, remained in line with our last quarter. We define gross revenue churn as the annual revenue contribution associated with billing accounts that cancel all of their agreements with us, divided by the total annual revenue recognized during a measurement period. As a reminder, our gross revenue churn does not include downgrades. In discussing the remainder of the income statement, please note that unless otherwise stated, all references to our expenses, operating results, and per share results are on a non-GAAP basis and are reconciled to our GAAP results in the earnings press release that was issued just before this call. We told you on our Q1 earnings call that given COVID-19's uncertainty and potential impact on our business, we would be responsible with our expenses and cash flow. We spent considerable time modeling scenarios to ensure we were making only the most important investments. Our actions resulted in strong expense savings that resulted in positive non-GAAP operating income and free cash flow. While we are proud of these results and believe they demonstrate our ability to control expenses and deliver profitability, we believe our leadership position in a very large market warrants the resumption of a more aggressive level of spend versus Q2. Gross profit was $85.7 million in Q2, representing a 74% gross margin. This compares with gross profit of $65.9 million and a 72% gross margin in the same period last year. We are pleased with the gross margin improvement we've been able to show, with 74% representing our highest gross margin rate in 10 quarters. That said, we believe Q2 will represent our highest gross margin for the year as we resume investments to support our growth. 
Sales and marketing expense was $42.5 million in Q2, or 37% of total revenue, an improvement of 630 basis points year over year. Sales and marketing expense was lower than normal due to slowed hiring, reduced marketing program spend, and reduced travel and sales-related events. As we have seen a pickup in end customer demand, we have started to more aggressively invest in sales and marketing. Q2 research and development expense was $23.8 million, or 20% of revenue, up slightly from 19% of revenue in Q2-19. This increase was consistent with our expectations as we continue to invest in our global cloud platform, including in new products, content, and features to drive sales growth and cost efficiency. Q2 general and administrative expense was $15.6 million, or 13% of revenue, versus 14% of revenue in Q2-19. Q2 non-GAAP operating income was $3.8 million, which was better than our previous guidance and exceeded our expectations as a result of stronger-than-expected revenue, lower hiring, and reduced travel and event expenses. Non-GAAP diluted net income per share was $0.04 cents in the quarter, based on 83.4 million diluted shares outstanding. Turning to our balance sheet and cash flow statements, our cash and cash equivalent were $474.4 million at the end of Q220, an increase of $23.9 million from $450.5 million at the end of Q120. Total deferred revenue as of Q220 was $167.7 million compared to $165.4 million at the end of Q120. Calculated billings is a non-GAAP metric that takes into consideration revenue and the change in deferred revenue, as well as the change in contract liabilities. Calculated billings was $118.7 million in Q220, up 22% year-over-year. April year-over-year billings growth was similar to that of March at around 10%, while we saw an acceleration to above the mid-20% area in each of May and June. We were very pleased with our billings results given the COVID-19 pandemic and a difficult 41% Q219 year-over-year comparison. It is difficult to predict our future quarter's billings, and we are currently not modeling forward our June results. As a reminder, as we saw in Q2, due to our strong performance in 2019, we will continue to face a difficult year-over-year comparison, both in Q3 and for the full year. Free cash flow was $6.2 million, compared to $7.2 million in the same quarter last year. Q2 free cash flow was negatively impacted by the launch of a special sales promotion that included net 90 payment terms versus our normal net 30, but was positively impacted by our deferral of U.S. employer payroll tax payments under the CARES Act. I will now conclude the call by providing guidance on revenue and non-GAAP operating loans for Q3 and for the full year of 2020. Our guidance assumes a modest improvement in the economic environment in the third quarter. We are further assuming that economic conditions will more broadly open up by the end of the year. Clearly, significant variation from these assumptions could cause us to modify our guidance higher or lower. For Q3 2020, we expect total revenue to be in the range of $115 to $117 million and expect professional services revenue to be flat year over year. Moving to non-GAAP operating loss, we did curtail and delay non-essential operating expenses in the early stages of the COVID-19 crisis. But due to our momentum and better demand conditions, we have resumed more aggressive hiring. Therefore, we expect our Q3 non-GAAP operating loss to be in the range of seven to $9 million. For the full year 2020, we are raising our total revenue guidance from a range of 455 to 465 million to a range of 465 to 470 million dollars. We are also raising our full year non-GAAP operating loss from a range of 18 to 22 million to a range of 16 to 20 million dollars. Our views on cash flow for the year have not changed and we continue to expect a modest level of cash burn in 2020. In closing, I would like to emphasize a few points that Scott touched on in his prepared remarks. While our business is not immune from the COVID-19 crisis, our Q2 results validate the resiliency of our business model and value proposition. 
I believe we are well positioned to take advantage of the large opportunity based on the four macro trends that are driving our business. Finally, after market close today, we announced that Avalara has commenced a public offering of a common stock. Please note that due to requirements of the securities laws, we will not be able to answer questions regarding our proposed public offering or our July results during the Q&A. At this point, we would like to open up the call for your questions. Thank you. As a reminder, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star followed by the number one on your telephone keypad. We ask that you please limit yourself to one question. Thank you. Your first question comes from Sterling Audi from J.P. Morgan. Your line is open. Great. Uh, thanks for taking our questions, guys. This is Jackson, the Ader line for Sterling tonight. Um, Scott, if we can start with you, the, the comment on M&A. Uh, I think you said it, it's been longer than you'd like since your last deal. Um, what do you think has been the main driver there? Has it been the size of potential transactions? Has it been price? Um, uh, is it you know, fit or execution and organization? You know, can you just give us a little bit of color as to why that would be? Sure, Jackson, thanks. Um, what, what I would say is, look, M&A is in our DNA. I mean, it's been around since, uh, you know, we started the company. We've done 21 tuck-in acquisitions, you know, to expand our IP and to expand uh, uh, content and, and all of those things. Um, and so we're always looking to do, to do deals. Um, and, you know, we know a lot of the people in the space, and so there's lots of – there's discussions – you know, that go on, you know, all the time around this. We've brought on a new executive team. We've been focused on really doing things uh, internally, getting everybody settled in their, in their jobs, focusing on what we, uh, you know, what, what we can do, you know, around efficiency and growth. And um, I, I think that uh, the deal took a back seat to, to, to that organization. And as I said, we're always continually looking to, uh, you know, to do to do acquisitions, so nothing has changed on that front. Okay, uh, great. And then a, a follow up for you, Ross. Um, without you know getting into to what happened in, in July, did did what you see in June? Um, you know, did did you feel like there was any actual demand pulled forward, uh, or was it all pent up from previous deals that didn't hit maybe in, in April and May that came in? Yeah, thanks, Jackson. I, I don't. I don't think it was pull forward. Um, I think it was probably more pent up demand. You know, as we know, March and April were the height of, of the COVID situation, and, and everyone grappling with how to deal with that. And so, I think that there was some some pent up demand as as our our business and our customers were trying to figure out how to progress forward, and, and that started to thaw out in, in May and June, and, and we saw a nice increase in our buildings growth rate and then market demand. So I, I think it was more pent up than, than any pull forward. Gotcha. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Yep. Your next question comes from Pat Wall-Raven from JMP. Your line is open. Oh, great. Thank you very much, and congratulations. Scott, my ears perked up when you were talking about um, the wind that had a cross-border element to it and um, customs duties. You know, a long time ago, I covered a company that did this, and I remember there's some real opportunities in terms of the ROI and um, people getting their money back from the government if you track all this stuff right. Can you just lay out what the opportunity is on the cross-border um, products? Hey, Pat, thanks. Um, we, you know, I've said this before. I am such a huge proponent of, of cross-border. I mean, I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's one of those kinds of things that in the, in the world of commerce, and especially e-commerce, people ought to know, both, you know, buyer and seller ought to know exactly what the cost is at the time of the, uh, of, of the purchase, right? I mean, the concept of having it segregated in the marketplace where, you know, you place an e-commerce order, you know, then you go to a third, then they have to go to a third party and deliver it. And when it gets to the, to the, to the consumer, they have to pay another bill is really absurd. I mean, in today's digital world, it should all happen right at the moment of, 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 uh, you know, clicking the buy and, 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 and acquiring that product. And so I've always fundamentally believed that it was this 
I mean, important aspect to add that to to all transactions at the time of uh, of uh, you know the magic moment of commerce. And so, I think as e-commerce goes, and I think it's just a huge benefit to the e-commerce people, uh, the e-commerce publishers, because they don't have to deal with you know people saying I don't want the product, I didn't, I, I don't need that product, especially if I have to pay this extra duty and this extra cost. Ship it back, right? Or take it back. I don't want it. And so abandonment is a huge issue for e-commerce uh, 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 manufacturers. And we, we, we do away with all of that. We help the, the consumer, you know, do the classifications. We help the, the, uh, the, the manufacturer make sure that all of the rates and everything are right. And, and it's a huge uh, competitive advantage for us because nobody in the space actually does this other than Avalara at the time. And and so we think it's a it's a huge advantage for manufacturers and a great benefit to uh to the customer. Great. And if I can ask just a quick follow up, is that an area where there's M and A to do? Like is there more content that you could acquire that that would help or do you have everything you need today? You know, um, so we started that internally, uh, started building it. Then we announced the acquisition of, of, of TradeStream, and then we did an acquisition of Portway, you know, around classification and making sure that, you know, all the HS codes are, are uh, aligned to, you know, the product codes in our system. And so we've made two acquisitions in that area, and, and we're always looking for more content and more, you know, uh, you know more IP that will help improve the service. So, I mean, I, I think the, uh, you know, the answer is, is yes, we're always looking for that. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. As a reminder, we ask that you change to limit yourself to one question. Thank you. Your next question comes from Brad Reback from Steeple. Your line is open. Brad Reback, your line is open. Sorry, was on mute. Uh, Ross, as you guys become more of a multi-product company, much like we were just talking there on, on uh, cross-border trade compliance, how should we think about that impacting net uh, net revenue expansion rates going forward? Yeah, thanks, thanks, Brad. Um, you know, I, I think that as you guys know, net net retention is is based on churn, uh, one factor, which as we talked on the call has been really healthy. Uh, it's based on upsell, uh, and, and on our sort of new booking side, upsells and really healthy, and then, and then downsell, uh, which in, in, in COVID has been a little bit higher. Normally it's a non-issue. It's been a little bit higher, but nothing to be concerned about. I think, uh, as we go forward, uh, with these new products, and they've, most of them have just been launched. You know, we talked about them a little before Analyst Day and at Analyst Day in June. Uh, as we go forward, our, our goal is to, you know, not only use them to land new customers, but to use them to expand our existing customers. And so the cross-border is a great example. You know, going back to companies that are e-com companies and by definition are national and international e-tailers, you know, calling them back and saying, how are you doing cross-border? Uh, uh, you should add this on, and, and it's built into the connector. Or going back and saying, how are you doing consumer use? You know, we should be going back to our customers. So I, I think – you know, over time, we, we should, we, it should be a benefit to, to, we should be expanding our customers more. I still say that we've always said that net retention revenue to, to think about it 110% plus or minus. Uh, and so right now it's been a little bit south of that due to some of the downsell from COVID. You know, I expect that will improve over time. And I expect in the long term, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see more out of expansion from our existing customers. Great. Thanks very much. Your next question comes from Chris Norwin from Goldman Sachs. Your line is open. Hey, thanks very much for taking my question. Um, you talked in the prepared remarks about a $300,000 deal, which was really exciting to hear. I imagine this is a an enterprise customer. So, so, so going forward, um, can you talk about any changes we might see to the go-to-market motion to reach more customers like that? Obviously, it sounds like you landed this customer um, via the, the go-to-market motion you have today with, with the 750-plus partner integrations, but as you think about, you know, further broadening at the product suite and solving more and more problems for large businesses, just curious how you think about um, that, that go-to-market motion uh, evolving in time as well. Thank you. 
Sure, Chris. I mean, you, you know as well as anybody because we've talked about it, which is, I mean, Avalara has always been selling to enterprise customers, but we've we've always called it we, we're doing it opportunistically that we um, that we that we use our existing sales motion to find the, the customers that want to move from on-prem to the cloud. And that's typically the impetus that, that we see when, when people start to make that, make that transition. And I don't see that changing for us. I mean, you know, we're going to continue to, you know, push that, that, that envelope around uh, being opportunistic. But I've also said that, it, you know, we have not had all the product features in our salespeople's bag that they need to sell at that upper level to everybody. And we said that by the end of 2020, we would have all of those things there for them. And so, you know, advanced rules, adding consumer use, you know, adding the cross-border. These are all the things that enterprise customers want to talk about. And, and now, you know, we have those or will have them in a very short period of time. So I would say that we would be stepping up our approach to, you know, uh, opportunistic, but I don't think it's going to be a, a huge change uh, in the way we, we, we go to market, at least now, not, not for the foreseeable future. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Your next question comes from Scott Berg from Needham. Your line is open. Hi, Scott and Ross. Thanks for taking my questions today. Congrats on a good quarter. I guess to uh, switch gears a little bit in an area I haven't heard you guys chat about recently, uh, can you comment on contributions or momentum that you're having with either the uh, different e-commerce platform vendors or the marketplaces? Uh, we've seen some of those vendors report GMV volumes up nearly 100% year over year you know, due to the uh, current pandemic. Didn't know if your revenues or the opportunities from, you know, those partners are kind of, you know, in line with that, uh, with those substantial growth rates or not. I'll start out on this one, and then I'll turn it over to Ross because he gets all fired up about this top-of-the-funnel program. But um, so, look, I mean, from e-commerce, e-commerce has been around with Travelera since our beginning, right? In the beginning of Avalara, you know, we did ERP, and we really nailed that moat, and we really got all of the, you know, mid-market ERPs, you know, uh, you know, tied up. But back in the day, there weren't as many e-commerce platforms, but they all called it API. So we were selling our SDK, and we had a robust business around that. Then e-commerce uh, platforms came out, and we started, you know, seeing, you know, a huge, up, you know, uptick in that. You know, so we do, a, you know, a significant portion of our business, you know, with e-commerce and marketplaces, you know, to, today. And I guess what I would say uh, before I turn it over to Ross is, is that the first thing that you have to do, the only thing that really matters is you must win these partners. Because, I mean, it's the same thing that happened in ERP. You must win the Sages and the Epicores and the NetSuites and all of those in, in order to protect the moat. And so the first thing that we have focused on more than anything is winning the Shopify, winning the Wixes, you know, winning the big commerces, winning all of those kinds of deals because that's the first process, you know, in, in, in monetizing these relationships. Ross, I, I'm going to turn it over to you because I know you love talking about this. Yeah, I mean, Scott, it's a great question, and, and we're really happy, happy with Shopify, big commerce, and our e-com platforms are doing great. And we've all seen the stats about the acceleration e-commerce in three or four months versus, you know, last 10 years. What, the way I would think about it is they're top of the funnel for us. We, we love it because they see it right away, GMV model, they got to move the e-commerce, shows up right away. And as they add, like Shopify Plus, as they add more customers that enroll on our platform, as you know, Shopify pays us a fee for each one. So we get nice growth from that. We really like that. But then our game really takes hold. You know, we then, they're on our platform calculating. We know who they are. We can then market to them returns and search and consumer use and cross-border and all our other products, convert them to a direct customer of ours, and, and grow them, and grow them into core customers, et cetera. And so I would just really think about it as these are, 
our future customers, their top of funnel. But for us, as we've always said, you know, it's quarters and years that they will evolve and we will convert them uh, uh, and, and enlarge them on our, on our platform with more products. Your next question comes from Brian Peterson from Rain and Dane. Your line is open. Hi, thanks for taking the question. So, so Scott, you mentioned um, some commentary on enforcement that, that might be on the horizon. I know 2020 has been an interesting year. I'm just curious what you've seen or heard uh, that, that maybe, I guess in the near term, that maybe gives you confidence in that and, and how you think about that unfolding over the next few years. Thank you. Well, um, I've got a few anecdotes that, that, I'll, that I will, will share, but I think that what I always tell everybody here, you know, at, at our company is uh, reality will impose itself. And, I mean, the reality of all of the, 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 the deficits, all of the relief programs that, you know, states, countries, you know, are, 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 are coming up with will have to be paid back in some way, shape, or form. So I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that, you know, more, more enforcement is, is, is coming. I, I, you know, it, it's just a continuation of the trend that was already there, whether it's Wayfair or it's marketplace rules or it's, you know, um, e-invoicing in the, in the, in the, in the EU and, and around the world. I mean, these are all programs that are designed to ensure that people are paying what they are supposed to be paying, and that there are no there, there are no free lunches out there. And I mean, you'll, this has played out around the world, um, even more so than in the U.S., uh, where where people are looking for for the companies that are not paying their fa fair share and and doing e-invoicing, that live reporting, you know, uh, notice fiscal are all programs to ensure that the government knows transactions are happening real time. And that is going to continue in, in earnest, consumer use. I mean, we have all of the pieces in, in place, and we have relationships with a lot of these players through, you know, different means, whether it be our exemption certificate business, our fuel business, you know, our telecom business. I mean, you know, we have surrounded you know, many of these enterprise customers, you know, in our, in, in our approach. So, you know, we're just going to continue to do what we've done um, and add the features that I've talked about, and we will just, you know, uh, gradually, you know, move up, move up market. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I'd add, Michael, because I think when we say opportunistic, some people hear it different from what we mean and feel like we're half in, half out. And I, I would just say, you know, we are in the enterprise business. We have an enterprise sales team. We have an enterprise marketing team. We win enterprise deals every quarter. Um, it's Scott's point of optimistic is, you know, it's a displacement market, and it's and it's it's hard to convince Walmart or pick your pick your favorite company. Hey, now's the time to go change out your systems and, and reevaluate your tax technology along with it. But they all, we believe, they all will, as we've always said, at some point, especially as they're trying to deal with COVID, as they're trying to deal with e-commerce, their back-end systems are a noose, and they're going to reevaluate them, and that will include the tax technology. And we just want to be there in all those conversations to have that at-bat because we think with the work we've done over the past few years on the platform, we can now deliver an end-to-end -end suite, and, and we have a lot of great capabilities to, to, to deliver for what their requirements are. So we, we, we expect to be in those conversations, and we think we can win our fair share. Your last question comes from Brett Hoff from Stevens. Your line is open. Good evening. Uh, thanks for taking the question and glad to see the value proposition really resonating uh, in the COVID world. Question, um, somebody asked about going up market. I want to ask about going down market. One of the questions we always have in great business models like this in the mid and middle market is always making sure that we're, you know, defending our flank on the very low end with good enough products. And so I'm thinking, I know you guys are going after some of that, but how have those conversations changed, either directly with some of the folks? I think you gave an example directly with the QuickBooks customer, but also with the uh, with the distributors you're working through there. You know, how is that resonating, and, and are we seeing just the, the you know what? Give us some examples of that value prop resonating. Thanks. You, you know that that that's uh, I mean a great uh, you know question, Brad, because for me you know for me personally, right. 
I mean, you know, focusing on the up market, you know, we talk about, you know, being opportunistic. Um, the mid market is, you know, sort of where our bread and butter is and we dominate that. But I am always fearful, you know, of the innovator's dilemma. I'm always fearful of, you know, be, you know, being displaced by something from, from below. And the only way to really protect yourself in this world is through partnerships. And it's one of the things that Avalara just, ex, I mean, exceeds, exceeds that, right? I mean, we're very, very good at, at that partner model. And what I mean by that is, is that it, it's, it's also a fool's errand to try to win the low end of the market on a one-off basis. So your relationships with the Shopify's and the big commerces and the Wix in particular, and you know, and and uh, you know, all of those kinds of players is what your barrier is to entry. And that's why I've said it's so important that you win those. You know, Ross talked about how we're going to monetize those in the future, but the most important thing is is to protect yourself and to deliver things like um, you know returns for small businesses. Returns for small businesses, which we, 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 we I said in my, uh, my analyst day, would come out in the next couple of weeks. I'm proud to say that they got it out a little bit early, and it's on the market now, which, which allows, you know, some of the, uh, uh, you know, e-commerce and marketplace uh, sellers to be able to sell a returns package along with the calculations that they're already doing. So, they're, you know, so what you have is you have to win these, and then you monetize them with, uh, you know, with something like returns or exemption certificates or other things that they, you know, registrations, other things that they that, that they need. But the key, the key, key, key is is to win those deals, to grow those deals, the zeros and the fresh fresh books and all of those kinds of things. That's how you win the the. And that's how you defend yourself at the low end of the market. We have no further questions. I'd like to turn the call back over to Avalara's co-founder and CEO, Scott McFarland, for closing remarks. Well, thank you all for your interest in Avalara, and we look forward to taking talking to you on our next call. You know, thanks for everybody joining in. Thanks to the Avalarians. We we all appreciate the support. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes today's conference call. Thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect.